All your base are belong to us. And welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I'm a Marissa Cooper stand now. I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and, um, well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about it, and the only thing that's coming to mind is uh, Sandy Cohen can always get it. Yeah, young Sandy Cohen can get it. Who is the guy from New Girl? What guy? I say as if I've ever watched New He's Girl. He's the one that gets with the really hot girl. I mean, they're all hot, I guess. The really awkward... No, I don't know. The really annoying one that gets with Zoe Chanel's best friend. Okay. I don't know. I have no... Nothing. He's really into his clothes. <laughs> anyway. Uh, today we're going to be talking about season three and four of the OC. Before we get started, I do want to give another just general warning for potentially triggering content, drug addiction, sexual assault etc uh and also a warning that we're going to swear in this one because why not uh just wanted to, to get into that before we actually get into the episode so seasons three and four of the oc were new to me i had never seen them because i loved season two so much um and i knew that season three was supposed to be bad and i was like what if i just stopped at season two and i always forget how season two ends <laughs> I, you know, I forgot how season two ends too. I was like, how did I forget? And how do you forget it? Right? How do you forget it? It's so iconic. Yeah. And yet, and yet we both forget what happens at the end of season two. And I think it's because Summer and Seth are my favorite parts of the OC. Like just hands down. They're my favorite, especially Summer. Like as, you know, as a teen, as a teen girl, it was all about Seth for me. Cause I was like, oh, this is my dream man. And now as an adult, I'm like, Summer Roberts is the greatest thing to ever happen to TV ever so um still still into it um now summer roberts is your dream girl but summer roberts not really no (laughs) no but i do she's my daughter and i love her okay Um, your daughter's date is is married to your um husband it's it's rough out here for me it's fine i'm i'm in love with my ex-husband's grandson it's it's rough it's rough out here um so life for a dog yeah yep (laughs) i'm sick okay it sure is so i had never watched seasons three and four because i had heard that season three in particular was just like really bad um so i had not ever sat down and watched it and i was like i'm content with season two because we get like the best ending to seth and summer's relationship when they finally get together it's so good uh as the spider-man 2 stan hello um it's so good though it is so good though uh, so yeah, I had not watched them and I went into them with pretty low expectations. However, I do have to say that season three really picked up in the back half. It, it really did. And season, the beginning of season four was, oh, so good. I loved it. Like the first the beginning half. Beginning of season four? Yeah. Is, is strong. Yeah. Like I think probably through the Chris huh? Like it was That's like. That's when it was like, huh? I, I actually really like the Chris huh? Like. I think it made sense. I just wasn't. I don't know. I have mixed feelings on it. <laughs> I really I really like it in terms of um, like getting to see because I think it was something that Ryan needed as a character. I agree. Um, it was something he needed to understand that like he, like the it. I mean, it's it's laid out it, like 
completely clearly when you know he blames he blames himself for marissa's death right and then he goes to this universe and he thinks that she's going to be alive and then it turns out that she died two years ago in mexico and he's like oh my god i couldn't save her i couldn't save her and then the result is that is it taylor who tells him you gave her two more years you gave her two more good years um but we'll get into more of marissa later but i was actually really impressed with the first the first half of season four um i still liked it as it went further into it but oh my god the first episode with not the first episode with frank atwood but the first episode where you know frank atwood is frank atwood and like there's the um the whole like sandy's like you lied to him and he fucking punches him yes good yes yes and then Dooley's dating him and i hated it it seems so weird I get what they were going for, but they didn't. I feel like they had a had a um a, the same issue as like Game of Thrones. They didn't have enough episodes to make us feel that. Yeah, I agree. I, I like thematically, I get it, and even for Julie's character, I get it because it was her like embracing this part of herself that she'd been trying to prune out for so long. But because we didn't get to see Frank do anything but be shitty, yeah, it just felt like okay is it is she obligated to date him because she's dated everybody else's dad like so i was totally rooting for the bullet i'm not even gonna lie i was rooting for the bullet do you think this is my question was the bullet like a george bush parody george w bush no because i don't think he was definitely nicer than bush but he was still a piece of shit well i mean people were literally protesting against him yeah because that's the he was on the fucking flyer um, I think that there were parts of that for sure. I think he represented a, a type of person in which a type of person was against. Yeah. Which is, which is interesting. Cause I'm like, I'm here for the bullet. He was, he was, I think, I think this is, I think it's actually really emblematic of the themes of the show that you have like this absolute shithole man who's like rich and powerful. And then you have this absolute shithole man who is not rich and powerful. Who's in fact poor, just got out of prison. Um, and the one who is rich is actually like less shitty than the poor yeah, one, which is just really wanted, just the OC. You just wanted Julie to. He be just happy. wanted his wife. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I I I was like for the bullet when he's like, I just want her to be happy, and if that's yeah. not with me, I'm like, that's exactly who Julie needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not some crap man. Yeah, who we haven't been shown to be good. Yeah, like the the lying should have been like there was no like coming back from that. Like it was like something like oh I lied because I was the only way I could talk to you and that was okay. That's not okay. It was bad. That's super fucking not okay. Um, and Sandy Cohen punching him is the greatest and one of the greatest moments in TV history because I fully thought that the show and it did eventually. I fully thought the show was gonna go that route of like no he's changed and Ryan forgives him and Ryan was wrong for not initially forgiving him. Um, and as somebody with estranged family members, that plot point pisses me off. And it happens in every fucking show where somebody has an estranged parent. Um, so it was really gratifying to have it be like, no, he's actually like his his attempt at being good is still shitty. And it doesn't excuse it just because like he was just trying to be good. Um, that's I mean, that's a loaded thing, though, because like, as I said, Frank Atwood is poor he's a recovering alcoholic he's like there's all of this coding going on with also he's played by kevin sorbo who fucking sucks in real life so i didn't know that yeah that's that's hercules oh from uh the the show that the show that became xeno was the spinoff of yeah 
he fucking sucks in real life. Uh, but anyway, that's unrelated. <laughs> Just my my feelings about Kevin Sorbo. Um, so like I really thought it was going to take that route and Ryan having Ryan was going to forgive him because, um, oh, I can see he's turned over a new leaf and it's me who's being cruel because I didn't forgive him on sight. Uh, and that's not what happens at all. I, eventually, I don't understand why Ryan suddenly like because Julie Cooper said he's good. I don't know. We believe Julie Cooper. Honestly, I didn't hate the end the end of season four, but everything with Frank Atwood really dragged it down. Yeah, for me. I agree. Um, if they, if we had gotten rid of Frank Atwood, I probably would have. It just kind of felt like they'd just be like, "Uh, we gotta fix this family dynamic. We fix it with his mom. Now we gotta fix it with his dad. Yeah, uh, throw him in there. Yeah, it was kind of like we don't bleh. actually have to fix it with his dad. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. We don't have to. We don't have to. Um, Ryan has a dad. Yeah, it's true. So one of the things I noticed watching season three, season three and four was like this kind of running theme in the show of all of these kids are aspirational to some degree, right? Like they're all super cool. They're all people that you wish you were friends with or that like you wanted to be or whatever. But you see in the show that not all of them are like seriously grappling, not just with like issues of mental health or whatever, but like they're so all so horribly self-conscious, like to the point where it just completely hamstrings them from accomplishing anything. None of them have faith in themselves. They're all having this horrible time. So as much as the OC was like definitely a trendsetter and people did look on all of these characters as aspirational, it also shows all of them having really miserable experiences, um, which, you know, doesn't actually make them not aspirational. But as an adult viewer, I saw a lot more of specifically how their environment makes them miserable, which is maybe something I wouldn't have picked up on as a teen watching the show. I wouldn't have picked up on like the actual villain of the show being Newport. Yeah. Um, and it, it becomes pretty clear in the in the final few episodes when you have Sandy and Kirsten talking about like, especially Kirsten talking about how horrible it is being in Newport mm-hmm. and then having the earthquake and then them ultimately leaving. Yeah. And her like, this is the same house. It's boring. Let's put an offer in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you have almost this like Legends of Tomorrow thing going on. We see how removing just one element from the story. And we see this most clearly with Ryan um ruins everybody's lives not just like makes them unhappy but ruins their lives like everything in the christmas christmas huh which is the episode which is like a wonderful life uh ryan and taylor fall off the roof and wake up in like a parallel dimension where um ryan never came to uh newport and all of it made sense to me right like oh yeah of course um Kirsten and Sandy got divorced and Kirsten ended up with Jimmy yeah Seth is miserable Summer's still Summer's like first 10 episodes Summer but then Sandy and Julie I don't get it so I I get it to an extent because we saw this in season three with with Sandy becoming like trying to use corp like his corporate power for good and so he married Julie not as a means of like I'm in love with Julie but as this this like extremely cynical attempt to do good I guess personally like that was like horrifying to see I'm like no the worst it one can't for me be. was Seth and how freaking creepy he was yeah he was so creepy like to the point of like what yeah it's it's another one of those times where like the show does a remarkably good job of being aware of how shitty Seth is and I just, yeah. I never expect, like, I knew, I, like, by season three, I should, or season four, I should know that the show knows how shitty Seth is. And yet, every time, I'm just so impressed. It's so self-aware. It's true. Um, 
But I mean, even like we don't see it as directly as we do with Ryan. But like if you remove any of the other characters, you would also not like all the other characters would be miserable, too. Like if you removed Sandy, well, Ryan never would have come to Newport. Um, Seth wouldn't have had like this moral code to go by. Uh, If you removed Kirsten, you wouldn't have had like like pushing Sandy. You wouldn't have had like this like. Sandy would have just floated away on his own morals and like never actually been grounded. Well, Sandy San- Sandy eventually decides to keep Ryan because of Kirsten. Right. And Kirsten decides to keep Ryan because of Seth. Right. And like if you didn't have Seth, then Ryan would have just been absolutely lost in Newport. He wouldn't have had a single friend. If you hadn't had Marissa, that's a whole thing. Uh if you hadn't had Summer, Seth would have just kept on being shitty Seth. Like, nobody probably would have pushed him to be better. Um, so all of these characters are important to one another's growth. There's nobody in the in the show that can be removed and have, like, and have everybody else stay exactly the same, which is part of what works so well about it. Um, so let's get into a little more critical stuff. So the show's representation of class does not really get any better. Um, so in season three, we have the aftermath to Ryan or to Marissa shooting Trey, which is that Marissa and Ryan both get expelled from Harbor and Ryan gets let back in. Um, but Marissa who actually did the shooting has to go to public school. Dun, dun, dun. Here's the thing that irritated me about that. And specifically the public school thing is Ryan goes to the public school and he's like, so suspicious of the public school kids. Like, who are these? What? There's they could be dangerous. Like, fucker, you went to public school. Calm down. Not everybody had your fucking advantages, Ryan. God, Ryan. Not everybody got adopted by a rich ass family. Seriously. Come on. Not everyone has a hot dad. Yeah. <laughs> um and, and like it on the one hand, maybe this could be a statement about how money changes people, but Ryan's never Ryan's right. So like they are all shitty. Not because they're public school kids. It just so happens that all of the public school kids are shitty. Especially Chili. Especially Chili. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, like, it, Johnny sucks so bad. <gasps> Johnny's worse. <laughs> Johnny's worse than Oliver. And I say this as somebody who fucking hates Oliver. Johnny is worse than Oliver. Johnny is just like a, a fucking weight dragging down the first half of season three he sucks so bad he's not even interesting he's not he's He's just sad so very like cute boy of the time yeah but he's also so boring yeah like i would nothing interesting about him besides that he surfs i would take oliver again over johnny he's he's so bad um and it's really telling that the moment johnny is out of the picture because he fucking dies um we just never hear about the public school kids again. They're just forgotten. Uh, so I have a quote I want to read, which is well, from... Not necessarily. I guess Volchek, who's not in public school. I kids. guess that's... Well, I think he... Well, and the did he drop was, out? That was um, harassing Marissa is with Volchek. Oh, right. So the public school kids just get eviler. Yeah, it's true. Um, so the majority of quotes I'm going to read in this essay are from this book, The OC of Critical Understanding, which is by Andrea M. Bergstrom, and Lori Bindig, um, which is an interesting uh, critical, like collection of critical thoughts on the OC. Uh, as you'll see, I agree with 
a lot of it in terms of class, in terms of race. But when it comes to the discussions about the female characters, I took the same issue with this book as I did a lot of other writing about the OC, which is only analyzing the female characters from an absolutely surface point of view. So before we get into that and before we get into my annoyance with a lot of critical writing about the OC, here's a quote from that about class. So even when the OC explicitly addresses addresses the importance of support systems for class mobility, the show is still extremely individualistic. For instance, in episode 73, The College Try, Ryan tells Kirsten that the only reason he was able to conquer Newport was because I had you and Seth and Sandy, to which Kirsten replies, hey, you did this. You earned your future. Enjoy it. Rather than acknowledge the instrumental role that her family played, Kirsten's reply reinforces the idea that success is directly related to effort and not impacted by any outside forces. In other words, success is presented as an individual choice. As a result, this exchange exemplifies the individualist ideology of neoliberalism. Hmm. And this is especially true because Ryan went to a fucking exclusive private school. Yeah. That if it wasn't exactly a UC system feeder school, it it doesn't matter because it definitely helped him get into Berkeley. Yeah. Like... Because what extracurriculars? Well, he definitely got into Berkeley because of Sandy, too. Right? What extra fucking curriculars was Ryan Atwood doing? When was he... he- was probably in the comic book club just <laughs> by name. Yeah. And like he was when did he do homework? He tried sometimes. It's just like I mean, this is regular TV show B- BS, right? Like of course we don't see the teens doing homework because that's boring as fuck. Um but like Ryan worked for what he got, but he also was he also was privileged in Mm -hmm. the position that he was put in. And it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah. Because Ryan had this, this like financial backing that, that none of the public school kids did. Like that he had this support system that nobody else did. And yes, he had a difficult life, but that doesn't erase, like having a difficult life doesn't also erase the privileges that you experience. That's what intersectionality is about. Like, you know, I grew up poor, but I'm also white. So, you know, I still have advantages that other people don't have. It doesn't erase the fact that I grew up poor to acknowledge that I am white and I benefit benefit from that. Um, there are different systems of oppression that don't, you know, one doesn't preclude the other. You, you know, just because you have one form of oppression doesn't mean that you have another form, doesn't mean that you don't have another form of privilege. Uh, and that's something that the show is like not interested in whatsoever. Um I'm sure from Kirsten's perspective, what she says is true, right? Like she, cause she doesn't, sure. I'm sure she doesn't see herself as privileged. Uh, but one of the places that the show fails is in never, ever making Ryan question how coming to Newport has changed him other than for the positive. And I would have loved to see Ryan grapple a little bit about, you know, his treatment of the public school kids. I would have liked to see a little bit of that. I would have liked to see Ryan like, you know, just acknowledging the fact that he has privilege now. He probably gets his fucking wife beaters at like, I don't know, yeah. Express or Express instead of Target Old Navy. or Old Navy. Like, you know, like just even a little bit, a little bit of acknowledgement of that would have gone a long way. Like how they did in the beginning with Seth and being like, I'm not, I'm not a rich kid, right? Yeah. Like, like deeping, like diving, just even those like little, little things like makes you be like, oh, okay. Yeah. 
And like we touched on this a little bit in the last episode, but Teresa is another really good example of this. So this is another quote from that same book. By the third season, Teresa's life is anything but unstable. Like many single mothers, Teresa ends up raising the baby on her own. However, she still experiences class mobility. Unlike Ryan, who was able to use the Coens as a resource, or Julie, who utilized her erotic capital to gain stability through marriage, Teresa's upward mobility is accounted for through her own hard work. When Ryan catches up with Teresa in episode 73, she explains her newfound class status. I got a job at the this hotel and then I got promoted and I got promoted again and again and suddenly I have a career. Like Paul and Will, Teresa's social mobility contributes to positive rep- representations of people of color. However, Teresa's social mobility also stresses self-reliance and individual perseverance in adversity rather than critically examining the sources of the hardships. So Teresa's arc is really great for Teresa. Like it's great for Teresa. We're happy for Teresa. I'm glad she succeeds. I'm glad that she gets out of Chino and away from her abusive boyfriend and all this kind of stuff. And now she has a stable job and she's able to raise her kid on her own. That's great. Uh, And it also lets Ryan off the hook. We no longer have to worry about him secretly being a father. Nicely ties up that loose end. Exactly. But on the other hand, that's like not really how things work. Um, It's immensely difficult for single mothers to find work because babysitting is really expensive. Um, it's immensely difficult for, especially like working at a hotel, you probably have to work nights. Um, and she had her mom. Yeah, she had her mom, which is great. Again, great. It's not impossible, but the degree of, of class mobility that, that Teresa exemplifies is just like not realistic. And because we don't see any other, like we, we only see good, poor people become stable by their own hard work and there's never any examination of like what poverty does it's it's always like kind of hinted at like it's like oh poverty can cause social issues and poverty can make you turn to crime or whatever but it's never like where does poverty come from who benefits from poverty who suffers most under poverty it's always just like if you work hard enough you won't be poor anymore and it's like well if you get adopted by a extremely wealthy family in Newport, you won't be poor anymore. If you yeah. magically get promoted at your hotel job over and over again until you're like running the hotel, sure. How often people, does that happen? People literally go to, to like school for that. Right. Like I my cousin does. Yeah. Like it's not something you just fall into. I'm you you can work your way up, um, but you're probably not like falling into it like that. Especially when you consider like how little like the workforce cares for mothers and how much pressure there is on mothers Mm -hmm. to like you have to take care of your kid and then you also are supposed to have this career and like the the career force is not willing to let you do both uh which makes it especially hard for single mothers um and like like i said that's just not it's just not the reality of the world but within this world it is and the problem with that is that we never see anything else um Things that characters like Sandy talk about, you know, they show that the show knows on some level that this is not realistic, but it never goes anywhere. Instead, we just get shown exception after exception after exception. Like, it's like, well, poor people are criminals, except Ryan and Teresa, who work really hard. If this was made after the crash, if it would still feel that way. That's I, I like I'm. it's so interesting to think about the world like just the concept of the OC post economic crisis. Yeah, it is. Um, and like the financial, well, I don't know. I'll go watch the, I don't think they touch on that in the gossip girl. Probably not. I imagine mm-hmm. gossip girl probably took the approach of like an escape rather yeah. than being a, a realistic representation. I don't think anyone gets real poor in that. 
I don't know. I'm going to rewatch it, though. Yeah. So I have another quote I want to read from that, which is, obviously, helping others is an important part of the human condition. However, when compassion and support are only portrayed on the interpersonal level, it actually undermines social progress rather than fostering it. When Sandy and later Ryan extends a hand, a hand to a stranger and it is portrayed as an adequate solution, it ignores the underlying systemic issues that are the root of the problem. In other words, while the individuals that are helped by Sandy and Ryan benefit greatly from their benevolence, there is no acknowledgement that there are numerous others just as deserving who never receive any assistance. Thus, by continually offering individual solutions, the OC masks larger social inequalities and reinforces the status quo. Likewise, the circumstances surrounding Sandy and Ryan's social mobility insinuate that it requires personal efforts instead of public programs and services. Yeah. So basically, the yeah, show yeah. <laughs> the show doesn't in any way engage with the social factors that contribute to poverty. So it, ne- it never examines the social issues at work here, right? It, it may touch on them briefly, but by not doing so, it instead reinforces the same idea that exists in Newport of rich people work hard, poor people bad. And it's just like, that's the most socially regressive <laughs> Like you shot yourself in the foot there because I know what you were trying to do and you did a bad job. It's true. It's just just a bad job. Yeah. I don't think they had any. Well, I don't know. They may like the showrunners may have had some intention on doing it, but I think that either they had no intention on on, like really examining that or they were told they couldn't just like the stuff with um, Alex. Right. Yeah. It's just it's one of those things where like the show is extremely white liberal of that period. Right. Like, it it totally buys into the myth of the American dream. It totally buys into, like, the idea that if you just work really hard, then you'll be successful and never examines, like, who can work hard, who has the benefit to work hard, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Um, So it doesn't get any better about race either. Race is... is I'm just going to touch on this pretty briefly. Um, the show does. because Just like the show does. So this is a quote from that same book. Uh, Although the portrayals appear on the surface. Actually, I have to pause for a second. Chris Brown? What the fuck? That was so bizarre. So weird. It went nowhere. It, it went, felt pointless. Yeah. What the fuck? Anyway. They should just take that out because it's Chris Brown. Yeah. It was so wild. Anyway, back to this quote. Although the portrayals appear on the surface to be positive, Paul and Will actually serve to perpetuate the myth of a post-racial society. For instance, in episode 59, Paul makes the following joke to Sandy, Seth, and Ryan. What do you call a black man flying a plane? A pilot, you racist. While Paul does explicitly bring race and racism into the conversation by making it the subject of a joke and literally laughing at it, he undermines any thoughts that these issues should be taken seriously. Since Paul is black and the source of the joke, it suggests that if people of color are no longer concerned about racism, no one else should be. So, right, there's a there's a handful of characters of color in this show. You have Will and Paul, as mentioned here. I think Paul shows up in a whopping one episode. Um, Paul, or sorry, Will goes nowhere. There's Teresa. Teresa. That's about it. The principal. Right? The, I always forget about the principal. Well, you know? <laughs> um, the OC just, like, has nothing to say about race, other than that this is apparently, like, a quote-unquote post-racial society. This came out before Obama's election, which is when that idea of we live in a post-racial society really took off because we're like, well, we have a black man as president. So we did it. We solved racism. Um, But it's a pretty good indicator of the state of things that you can have two, two black characters in almost 100 episodes of a TV show about class and corruption. One joke about how the show isn't racist but a whole bunch of depictions of people of color as criminals. I would be really interested for you for us to follow this up with um 
Runaways because mm-hmm. that has a lot of people of color in it and has a lot of different depictions of people of color in it. And I think, and it's the same as Josh, Josh Schwartz. And so I think it'd be really interesting to um, watch that with this in mind. And I think, I don't know if it does it any better because there's still a lot going on. Right. But it'd be interesting to um, have this conversation with that show. It just seems, here's the thing, like, it seems, do I think that the show is the best place to examine race and poverty? No. But it seems fucking ridiculous to have a show about class and poverty and to just gloss over the idea of racism. Look, the show's got about 17 different after school special episodes. (laughs) We can have one on race. Right? Like, you could have one, one time where you bring in a consultant to be like, here's how you not fuck this up, guys. And they did not do that. It's just frankly embarrassing. It is legit one of the whitest shows I've ever seen in my entire life. Granted, I don't watch a lot of TV, but it it just, it is so glaringly white. Um, So that's, that's, I mean, that's not it for social issues. We're always talking about social issues, but I would like to take kind of like, let's go into each character because Dive. we finished the show now. And we have like a good understanding of the characters and the characters are what make the show really work to me because as we just said, it's examination of class and race fucking suck. Um, so, <laughs> so let's look at the individual characters. I don't have a large section about Ryan, but that's okay because I could talk at length about Ryan. Um, just as an introduction, the first time I watched this show, I thought Ryan was so boring. I was like, this kid, so boring, so tired of his brooding. Watching it again, I'm like, Ryan is my son and I would die for him. Um... I would protect him with my life, uh, especially when we get into season four, because his relationship with Taylor is so fucking good. It's so fucking good. I just like the first time Ryan made a joke, I about died. I was so proud of my son for making a joke. It wasn't a good joke, but I was so proud of him. Um, his evolution as a character and the way that the people that he's surrounded by push him in new, like uncomfortable directions is just so good. And one of the things I really like is how the evolution of his relationship, like his romantic relationships with um, with Marissa and with Lindsay, with Lindsay and with Marissa and with eventually with Taylor kind of show this person that he's growing into and growing away from. So like when he's with Marissa, he is 100 percent protector, like defender. He's her fucking knight with like a sword and shield. When he's with Lindsay, he gets to be a little more relaxed. But then like this big thing happens and so it just turns weird again and then when he gets to taylor taylor absolutely is a person who is just chaotic like her life is chaotic she's had chaotic good she's chaotic good she's had like a pretty girls never had a fucking birthday party like i know god damn um she's had this like really like pretty tragic experience not not in the same way as marissa but she's still had this like pretty traumatic upbringing she like went the opposite way she's like literally the polar opposite of marissa yeah not literally because she's still like really into like social chair and all that stuff but she's her upbringing is different yeah and the same but the reaction is different there we go yeah the the way that they the way that they turn out as a result of their upbringing is is are very different from one another you would never mistake one for the other um but the thing that works about it is that yes she's a person who needs and deserves care right but like she also can stand on her own two feet. She doesn't need Ryan in the same way. And that's why it ultimately makes sense for me for the two of them to get together because like that piece of him that always wants to protect people, like he can nurture he can nurture Taylor not by like throwing himself into fights for her, but rather by 
just being there and existing, which I think is a huge growth, yeah. like a huge amount like of growth. Showing Ryan. some emotion. Yeah, that's important to Taylor, whereas it wasn't as important to Marissa. Yeah, I think that like showing emotion meant that he cared for Taylor and like protecting meant he cared for Marissa. And that's toxic. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why it ultimately works really well for me. So we also see, I mean, throughout season one, we have Ryan picking a lot of fights, right? And then season two, he's like, I'm not going to pick fights. I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to try really hard. And then like, he does really well for most of it. And then he goes to fight his brother, which fair. Yeah, fair. We would all like to fight Trey. Yeah, that's true. He fucking sucks. He um, season three, you have, he's trying again. He's trying really hard. I'm s- The fucking Johnny plot line is so bad because then he has to bear the guilt of like feeling responsible for johnny's death and marissa also feels responsible for johnny's death and so does caitlin and so does caitlin everybody feels responsible for johnny's death johnny's just johnny it's just johnny um it was like it was an accident but at the same time like fucked up uh anyway and then season four we have him i don't think he fights anybody does he get in a fight with he's in fight club Right. He starts off fighting. He regresses into this like yeah. old version of himself where all he can do is be physical and fight and get that out. Like he was that legit fight music, club. That was so good. Um, so speaking of fighting, I have another quote I want to read from that book. Uh, Ryan insinuates that he will attack Volchek with a broken bottle by stating, I've been fighting guys like you for years. You want to bash my face in because your life sucks? Fine. But if you want me to fight, you're going to have to kill me. So what's it going to be? Like his previous comment, Ryan's statement once again connects working class characters with violent behavior. Although Ryan is now seen as wealthy because he was adopted by the Coens, his remark about past fights reminds Volchek as well as the audience that he too is working class and more than capable of violence. So this book draws a a connection between the ways that violence usually usually comes from the um, working class characters and is carried on by working class characters. And when Ryan does perpetuate violence it's when he's at his like most quote-unquote working class um like he goes yeah that's true he goes to Volchek's place to instigate this fight right um and I think the show's biggest failing for me is that it doesn't do enough to equate the literal violence uh between characters like Volchek and Ryan or like Luke and Ryan or Volchek and Ryan or any of the other people that Ryan fights throughout the show. It doesn't do enough to equate that literal physical violence with the violence perpetrated by the upper class of Newport, who are totally content to just live in their bubble and hurt one another socially while people there and elsewhere are suffering. Like when Julie like in i think it's in season one when she like spreads kirsten's dirty laundry everywhere um like yes that's not literal violence but it is still damaging damaging it's still hurtful and like the people of newport just do that kind of thing i mean jimmy gets forgiven over and over again for his dumb bullshit and um, imagine forgiving somebody for losing all like that much that much money and then giving them more money those wild fucking wild um so like the violence that ryan inflicts on people and that volchek inflicts on people and that kind of thing is always like it's always shown to be bad like the show is not pro-violence except maybe when sandy hits frank because he's right um but uh the show never really like it encourages us to do to think about it right to think about the fact that like the way that the people of newport treat each other is bad but it never really makes that that connection between like what the people of Newport do is bad and it's not any morally better just because there's no physical violence. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't make that leap. Yeah. And that's what, like, that's what I want it to do. I want it to, I want it to show that like these people are fucked up 
everywhere. I think it's I think it would have been important for the people of Newport to understand that and mm-hmm. to like be taught that lesson. Um and it would probably would have been really a really good like after school special type of episode, but um it didn't do that. Yeah. Like lives are lives are just as ruined by physical violence as they are by the horrible things that the people of Newport do to one another. Um it's I think that I think that we're shown that the Newport stuff does ruin lives, but I think that we're also shown that they can come back from it super easily Mm -hmm. and like it doesn't destroy their lives in the same way. Right. So like for Julie is a good example of like her husband essentially um, just just like destroying her life. And then she sleeps with her daughter's ex-boyfriend, but she can come back from that. And it's not seen as the same as Ryan fighting somebody. Yeah. Like when like, they're both bad. Ryan fighting somebody is usually like, see, like justified. First of all, yeah. First of all, justified. There are very few fights. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure there's at least one uh, where Ryan fights somebody, and I'm like, he didn't deserve that. Most of the time, I'm like, yeah, get him, Ryan. <laughs> um, but and then and then in the you know among the people of Newport, it's more like. Well, it's not good that they're doing these things, but there's no like... It's almost like a joke. Yeah, like, oh, these morally... Yeah, the people of Newport, like, it's... Like, it clearly is more like, ha-ha, the people of Newport are morally bankrupt, and never, like, the violence that they inflict on one another and the violence that they inflict on the working class is amoral and arguably worse than Ryan punching Luke in the face. Yeah. Like, who fucking cares if he punched Luke in the face? Luke is a dick. Yeah. Luke's gonna recover. He'll his parents are rich. He can go to the doctor and they'll fix his fucking face. Summer's dad will fix it. Summer's dad will fix his fucking face. Like, whereas the shit that like the Newport group, for example, does in developing land and gentrifying, we just we just gloss on. Like, we don't need to think about that. Like, what has the Newport group fucking done to help the people of Chino? Nothing. Like, and th- and that just goes unexamined entirely. They're just they not try interested with like the low income housing, right? But they try. But even that becomes Sandy becoming, in a sense, morally bankrupt. Yep. Like, So let's talk about Sandy on that note. So the first thing I want to read is a quote from like mother, like daughter, like father, like son, the spell of youth on the OC, which is by Stefano Morello, uh, who writes, as he explains in the DVD commentary, Sandy Cohen represents the anchor and the rock of the show. There's a very long citation after that. <laughs> in the early days of the show, Schwartz admitted that the core of the show is the father-son dynamic between Sandy and Ryan. Thus, the former... The former does not only serve as a positive role model for the viewers, but especially for the latter. In fact, while the show invites the audience to identify with Sandy, the trajectory of the show's overarching narrative is driven by Ryan's progressively becoming Sandy by learning his place in the world and becoming, as Huck Finn would have it, civilized. The closing scene of the show's finale references and mimics the pivotal moment in the pilot episode when, following his release from the youth detention center, Sandy invites Ryan to return to Orange County with him. When, in the end, is not now near it's here ryan offers his help to an underprivileged kid undoubtedly resembling his former self the story and the protagonist process of becoming comes full circle so i've i agree with this and i have mixed feelings about the show's representation of this kind of thing because on one hand tear down the structures that contribute to oppression like fucking critique the hell out of the societal means of you know oppression and examine the social causes of poverty and and that kind of thing right like those are super important we can't just pretend that they don't exist on the other hand sometimes the most profound actions we can take are those that better the lives of those in our 
own communities, right? It, it reminds me a lot of like the discussion about climate change. Yeah. On the one hand, we absolutely need to destroy fossil fuel companies in order to prevent global warming. Like that's it's the it is the fault of fossil fuels, fossil fuel companies. On the other hand, like putting solar panels panels on your roof doesn't fucking hurt. Right. Shopping at your local um, farmer's market betters the lives of those around you. It's not a cure, but it's not making anything any worse. So if the show had actually taken the time to really engage with the idea of there are social causes of oppression, there are causes, uh, there are like societal issues that cause poverty beyond not working hard enough. um, These this moment of Ryan continuing the cycle of reaching out to help would be really, really meaningful. And it still is because we care about Ryan, right? Like, yeah. we care about him as, and as a character. it feels full circle. It feels right. like we're ending a story. And Yeah, it's not ineffective. But imagine the punch it would have had if Ryan also was, like, actively building low-income housing or something like that. And we don't know that he's not. I mean, we don't know that he's not, but we have no clue that he is. Yeah, we I think... Don't... I honestly think if this were created now, that he would be. Yeah. That he would be he'd be working he wouldn't maybe wouldn't be a architect he'd be working as a social worker or something like that yeah um and that's that's the thing is like i really like the the like this is not the proper use of this term but i really like the direct action that he's taking in that he is extending his hand to help somebody who was who is in the same position that he was once once in we've talked about in in a completely different context you know we've talked a lot about uh, after that panel we went to at emerald city where they were talking about the idea of when you push the door open with one hand and you bring somebody else through with the other, right? You don't leave somebody behind and say, fuck, you got mine. Um, so that that makes me happy. It, it, I like seeing that kind of thing. But the show, unfortunately, doesn't do enough to back that up with the critiques of, of the societal issues of poverty. Like, that would really make that work for me. Which is a shame, because they, sh- they could have, you know? They could have, but like... They didn't do the whole thing, so no. it made sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have another quote I want to read, which is from the book, uh, you know, the OC, A Critical Understanding, where they write, for instance, Alex in episode 30. This is st- We're still talking about Sandy, uh, despite us just talking about Ryan. Uh, <laughs> for instance, in episode- Alex in episode 30, the new kids on the block, Alex explains that she has a strained relationship with her parents. She's also a little edgy around figures of authority. However, by episode 35, after just being introduced to Sandy, she tells Seth, I never listened to my own parents. Suddenly, I'm compelled to listen to yours. To which Seth replies, Sandy Cohen has that effect on people. Not only does this dialogue support Sandy's epic ability to help even the most reluctant people, it also reveals that parental guidance is highly gendered because only one of Seth's parents is acknowledged, and it, unsurprisingly, is Sandy. Okay, but I'd rather listen to Sandy than Kirsten. That's what I said. Okay, so I said I don't disagree that parental guidance is gendered in this show. I don't disagree in any sense. Think of how Jimmy is treated in comparison to Julie, even Bullet in comparison to Julie. Like all of the father figures are treated more positively than the mother figures, right? So I don't disagree that parental guidance is gendered. But if we look at it from a character perspective, I would super listen to Sandy over Kirsten. Kirsten is notably distant and significantly colder than Sandy, which, you know, none of that is to say that Kirsten is a bad character. In fact, she's one of my favorites, although to be fair, everybody is my favorite. Uh, But rather that I would probably respond better to Sandy's lead by example and let the kids screw up on their own kind of approach than to Kirsten's like more helicopter mom. Helicopter. Yeah. You know, like given Alex's whole situation in particular, it makes sense that she would gravitate to him over Kirsten. Sandy is a good leader. 
He's a good leader of people. He's a bad leader of business. Yeah, we see this, the good leader of people in in the uh, earthquake episode. Yes, very much so. Very, very much so. He's there. He's like when they say that he's a rock, like he is. He's there. He's stable. He's guiding people through example and through compassion. He's not like yelling at people to get into place. He's being like, people who can help you go here. People who need help you go here. We're going to figure this out, right? That kind of leadership is really valuable. And it's also what ends up screwing him when he joins the Newport group in season three. So in season three, he ends up taking over the Newport group and wants... Yeah, it was Mary's like rolling her eyes. It's like... It's so bizarre. It's very bizarre. And he, you know, he takes over the new Newport group so that he can do good things with all this power right like he wants to build low-income housing he wants to build a hospital he wants to do he wants to do all of this good stuff for the community unfortunately he's surrounded by corrupt people who he tries to guide into the light right like he like he tries he tries to lead them by example and to do all of this good stuff but he can't these people are not savable (laughs) um and then there's matt which doesn't make sense matt was a wild matt was another chris brown yeah what are you what's going what's What's going on um, so the, the OC, a critical understanding, um, this is the briefest, world's briefest quote. Uh, additionally, Sandy maintains his integrity when he tries to be a corporate hero. On the, on the surface, I agree with this, right? He tries hard to maintain his integrity. Uh, and the show shows us concretely that Sandy's sense of altruism is incompatible with the corporate world. They literally cannot work together. He has to leave. He cannot win. However, I don't know that this is strictly true. Because in using the Newport group to do good things for the community, he abandons his family. And he makes a point of saying that family is everything. So when he trades, essentially trades his family for power with the Newport group, even if it's doing good, he is still betraying his integrity. Yep. Um, so like, like as we mentioned earlier, look at what happens when he and Kirsten get divorced in the Chrismica, huh? I like vehemently agree- disagree with this quote. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, I think that that was the point of the whole of him going there is he literally betrayed his integrity, and in the end, he redeems himself by by being like, okay, this guy is bad, and I'm willing to let go of some of this thing that might be good in order to put away a bad person and save my family. It depends on what you're viewing as his integrity, right? Like, his in, is his integrity only his interest in social issues or his, is, is his integrity also the people that surround him? But I also think that by putting him... by Yes, he wants his hospital to go forth. He also has to get in bed with this bad person, which it, in turn creates his good thing into a bad thing. Yeah, like how, how far are you willing to go to accomplish this good thing? Yeah. D- I think that erodes at his integrity. Imagine if they put this much thought into like the social other social issues. Right? Would have been wild. This is a great this is a great example of a way it's like to like like a lot of politicians I would imagine do bad things in order to get good things done. Mm-hmm. Um but but how far do you go? And we see this with Ryan too of like um with Volchek of what was it? Like he has to the the idea that you have to just do this one thing to get something done, but then there's another thing. And they always have it over your head. And I think that this, falls into that this kind of came up on the most recent episode of the good place as well um there's a character who i won't spoil anything tells a lie and then who tells another lie and those lies go unnoticed but there's a third lie that is detected and then that character is pressured and they're like why did you lie if you had nothing to hide and the character's like well i only lied to cover up the two previous lies so was it jay 
Jason? No, oh. it was not Jason. Um, and like, that's it's the same kind of idea, right? Like, well, I only did the bad thing to make up for the other bad things that I may or not have may or may not have been responsible for. And it's like, well, I don't know that we can say his integrity is in tr- is intact if he's getting in bed with all of these really bad people. Like, yes, the hospital should be built. But at what, but at what cost? Yeah, at what cost? At what cost, Sandy Cohen? Get the fuck out of Newport. Um, and does Newport need the hospital? Right? <laughs> does Newport need that fucking hospital? Like, really? Does Newport... I can't believe like, the idea was to also have the low-income housing, but did you really think they were going to continue with the low-income housing? Yeah. They were not. Sandy's naive, and it's that naive naivety that makes him so wonderful. Like, we love Sandy's naivety. Uh, we don't want him to become cynical, but that's exactly why he can't exist in Newport. Like Newport is a, is a force acting against him. It's just never going to happen. This is an incredibly cynical view, especially coming from me, Melissa Brinks. But like, that's how like that's that's the world that this show takes place in is is it's just never going to happen. Um. So, yeah. Anything else to say about Sandy? You can always get it. He's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really like I really like Sandy, but like. Sandy is like ideal dad figure and I just can't. I'm sorry for you. I just no, it's fine. Sandy Cohen is my real dad and I'm fine with that. I'm fine with it. It's okay if you want. You're like fucking Billie Eilish over here. Might seduce your dad type. Um. Anyway, let's talk about Marissa. Oh, Marissa. So again, full disclosure. First time I watched the show, I did not care about Marissa one bit. I thought she was boring. Didn't care. Not interested. I was like, this girl serves no purpose. So watching it again i feel so hard for marissa like not not in the sense that i identify with her we have literally fucking nothing in common not a goddamn thing but like her arc in season three was one of the fucking saddest things i've ever seen it was very rough i was so upset and not in the sense of like my empathy is like at its peak more in the sense of this is fucking mean on the part of the show so one of the things that we kind of talked about last episode that we'll talk about more this episode is the idea that the the like fan response to marissa was really intense and hated marissa and misha barton and there was i felt that there was a lot of misogyny there in the way that people talked about marissa and that's going to be a running theme through the this whole section about marissa so first of all i have a quote i want to read from remembering the oc creator josh schwartz on the show's 10th anniversary which is by marlo stern uh where josh schwartz this is Josh Schwartz. I think the question I get asked the most is, why did you kill Marissa? And the interviewer asks, so why did you? And he says, it's a complicated, multifaceted question. It had as much to do with creatively feeling like this was always in the cards for this character. And she was an inherently tragic heroine. And part of the Ryan Marissa story was him trying to save her from a fate that she couldn't be rescued from. And part of it had to do with pressure from the network in terms of ratings and what we could do for the show's fourth season. For a lot of critics, that character was a source of frustration. For a lot of audience members, that that was their favorite character. And the interviewer asks, was it also because Misha Barton wanted off the show? Misha didn't want off the show any more than any of the other kids wanted off the show. It was a complicated chemistry with the cast, but she certainly wasn't actively seeking to leave the show. So there's a few things here I want to talk about. The first is the idea that Misha Bar- Barton wanted off of the show. So when, we, when Mary and I were talking about this show... I was like, it's re- it's weird to me that me- that Marissa gets killed off. And Mary's like, well, Misha Barton walked off the show. And I was like, really? Did she? And I Googled it and I can find nothing about her wanting off the show. I can only find people saying Misha Barton wanted off the show. Well, she did some things that were like sabotage. She leaked her death. She leaked her death the day of. Yeah. <laughs> so is- 
blame. But why did everybody jump to blaming Misha Barton for her own character getting killed off when nobody else was doing that and Misha Barton and Josh Schwartz both said it wasn't true? Well, because of misogyny. Yeah, because Misha Barton, if Misha Barton was out here savage, like saying my character is going to die, ha ha, why would she not have just said like, I want it off the fucking show because it was a miserable experience. Well, she did. She did say she wanted to make sure that the character was dead and didn't like move to another right. state. Right. I have that right here. So this is a quote from OC Star discusses characters exit exit by Fiona Edwards, which is one of the articles, which is like I think based on the quote where where she leaked it. Barton told Newsweek magazine about her reaction to Marissa's departure from the show. Well, I was really excited that I get to die, to be honest. I've done pretty much everything else with the character. It was better than one of those lame farewells. Although rumors have been flying that Barton was ready to quit the show and move on, Misha maintains that the decision to kill Marissa was taken by the show's producers. So, again, a couple things to talk about here. Marissa's ex- uh, Marisha Barton's excited to get to die as the character. That's fine. Whatever. I'm sure it was... I, as we know now, with hindsight... A lot of the cast was fucking miserable filming the OC. Yeah. And I'm not sure it was that they didn't like each other. I didn't look into the reasons. Um, But between, you know, there's the potential for them not to like one another, as Josh Schwartz hinted with the um, it was a complicated chemistry with the cast. Like, it's quite possible that they fucking hated one another. Um, But there's also the fact that they were filming 25 fucking episodes a season. Yeah. Um, Well, I think also, like, there are a lot of age differences. There was X boyfriend girlfriend yeah uh recently uh rachel bilson did uh an interview and someone asked if she would ever do an oc reunion and she's like absolutely and she goes i know three people who wouldn't and then she goes four five (laughs) eight people who wouldn't do it but i would yeah and it makes sense because she has a long-lasting relationship with josh schwartz and josh schwartz's wife she's the godmother to their children she was in their wedding and stuff so it makes sense that she'd be like all on board for that um that relationship i don't think extends to everybody else right um so like there's a lot of possible reasons that misha barton would have wanted off the show right but there's also this this what she says it was better than one of those lame farewells we don't know what she meant by that but the instinct is to say that like she wanted her character to die when it could just be she wanted an ending there for her is, character. There is a there is a interview where she says I wanted I didn't want it to be where she just moved to another town. I mm-hmm. wanted it to be for sure. I didn't want her to come back. And I mean that's fair because if she was having a miserable time filming yeah. the show, of course she doesn't want to come back. It seems but like that she got she got the better end of the stick, <laughs> right? Yeah, like she seems like she's the only one that got her way, right? And the thing is the thing is that I think. I think there's a lot of ways to read what she's saying because she's not necessarily saying I wanted my character to die. She's saying I wanted my character to have a, an ending, mm-hmm. not a like, oh, we're going to bring her back later when ratings exactly. dip. She wanted the character to have an ending. Well, She also wanted to start her career. I, I know that a lot of them were felt like they were going to get pigeonholed into these into these characters. And a lot of them did. Right. And so that's why you see a lot of some of the, the characters that weren't like um, Caitlin Cooper, her her that actress went on to do um, uh, Arrow and, mm-hmm. and like a couple other ones who weren't as big went on to do like bigger stuff. I mean, Ryan, that, that that actor has done a lot of stuff, but um, so a lot of them didn't want to get pigeonholed into these, into these characters. And I, and I really rereading a lot of this stuff. It just, it really just feels like Misha Barton got her way. Yeah. Like as opposed to everybody else. Yeah. And everybody got mad at Misha Barton for that. Yeah. And then it didn't make the most sense for her to die. She is the tragic character. I mm-hmm. understand like what Josh Schwartz was saying. Like it, this did seem like this did seem like where her character was going. It sucks. 
Um, especially when like her life seemed to be like it was just about to get better, but it, it made the most sense. So it's like, okay, who wants off the show? I mean, there were, I was looking at old, old, um, like live journal entries about, about the show. There were so many rumors going around what was going to happen. One of which was that Seth Cohen was going to lose his legs. Like wild. Like there are so many rumors about what was going on. Yeah. And that's the thing is Mary was sending me some of those posts and I was looking at the way people were talking about Marissa and Misha Barton and it was so hateful. To be fair, it was, oh no, they didn't. And they're hateful about everything. Right. But at the same, that's, that's not the only place. Don't worry. I have, I I have more citations. Um, The point being here, we need to think not just about whether or not Misha Barton wanted off the show, which is probable. Like, I'm not saying that it's not that she didn't want off the show and she was unceremoniously fired or whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's that she got her way. Yeah. But also why her character was killed off when nobody else's was. I mean, Johnny got killed off, but that's different. So And the grandpa. It's possible. Yeah. It is absolutely possible that Misha Barton lied about her like her ending being up to the producers but why lie she was not coy about her feelings on the show yeah and she like she totally spoiled her ending right um and her story her story what she told newsweek echoes what josh schwartz said so why do people believe that it's actually misha barton who like killed her character and destroyed that arc of the show misogyny well, and it's interesting, too, because I was looking at, like, um, why did people stop liking the OC and stuff? And, like, a lot of the answers were the show killed off Marissa. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. So it's like, damned if you damned if you don't. She she became she was like a fucking scapegoat for the show. And, and then once she's gone, you're like, oh, no, who am I going to hate now? Yeah. Ryan becomes a completely different person. Yeah. For for the better of Ryan. Right. But that but season four, Ryan is not the same person and like that makes sense like people grow up and stuff but it's not season three especially season four is not the same show as season one and two. especially when you look at like ryan's changes in particular tell you that marissa was like a fucking anchor around his neck right like he she was dragging him down and that fucking sucks like that sucks that's the thing so yeah i'm gonna get a little heated so marissa's entire arc in season three is tragic and it pisses me off not in the sense of like i'm sad i'm sad and like the show has done a good job of making me sad as in i think marissa's character is fucking misogynistic and people were glomming on to the misogyny that was inherent in the way she was written and like making like internalizing that like we hate marissa because uh, you know xyz reason because of what we're told in the show in the sense of people talking about Marissa and really the female characters in, in, in general with this like really misogynistic tone, I read and I don't have the exact quote, so bear with me. Um, there was a quote saying in like some teen gossip magazine that uh, Rachel Bilson and Misha Barton hated one another. Huh. And their evidence for this was a quote in which Rachel Bilson said something to the effect of uh, or Mar- Misha Barton said something to the effect of. Rachel Bilson has really big boobs and people think that she's very attractive. And that was it. Hmm. They use that as evidence that they hated one another. And like, it's again, quite possible they did hate one another. I have no fucking idea. I was not on the set of the OC. But at the same time, like, why is that evident? Like, Rachel Bilson does have really big boobs and people do find her really attractive. Like, I don't understand how that is evidence. It's just, it's just furthering this narrative that like Misha Barton was like a mean bully and had to be killed off because that was going to save the show or something or she wanted off the show she had no great because like and we talked about this in the last episode the the thing that she said about like 
the the veteran with no legs loves the OC and she's like really you like my stupid show and like I read the oh no they didn't um post on that and people in it were like she's such an ungrateful bitch yeah she's nasty like all this kind of stuff and it's like well okay maybe she is ungrateful but like who the fuck cares it really is a stupid show I love it I love it it's great I would defend the show to the death but like it I mean it is kind of a stupid show (laughs) I love it it's stupid though um so anyway this is a quote from uh from the OC critical understanding from the first episode Ryan is seen rescuing Marissa who is passed out from drinking and abandoned by her friends outside her house after seeing Marissa's friends drive off Ryan comes over picks Marissa up and carries her to the pool house in the DVD commentary for the pilot series creator Josh Schwartz explains this was a dynamic that Ryan was going to find himself in throughout the series sometimes literally carrying her in his arms executive producer Stephanie Savage describes the scene as a gentlemanly almost fairy tale like moment of rescuing her and laying her down. Thus, it becomes explicit that part of the fairy tale embedded in the OC is rooted in Ryan's heroism and Marissa's helplessness. And of course, this scene is echoed in the scene where Marissa dies. Ryan picks her up in his arms, carries her, lays her down, and finally has to grapple with the fact that this is a time in which he cannot save her. So this is intentional. This is baked into Marissa's character from the beginning. She is set up as a damsel for Ryan to rescue, and that's where her trajectory has to take her, because that's the way that she is written. And it actually really fucking upsets me that she died, even though I thought it wouldn't. I thought I was going to reach Marissa's death and I wasn't going to feel anything because Marissa had been like so... She'd not, not been my favorite character. I don't hate Marissa, but like she's never been my favorite. She hasn't been that interesting to me. And she was mostly there to make Ryan do stuff, right? She was more of a pawn than a character. But in season three, she experienced so much and so much of it was out of her control. She gets blamed for shooting Trey. Um, She almost like at one point she's going to be investigated. They drop that plot like a fucking hot potato, not tomato, not a hot tomato, hot tomato. (laughs) They dropped it like a hot potato. Um, and so much of his like so much of what she experiences is out of her control. So there's that. Then there's the she gets blamed for Johnny's death, which is bullshit. Yeah, she didn't do anything. She tried to help him. Yeah, like all of this kind of stuff. And it like frankly feels unfair to have her die with so much weighing her down. Literally, the only thing to me that does not suck about her death is that it was a car accident because I was afraid she was going to kill herself. Oh yeah, that's fair. That's the only thing about her death that does not fucking suck to me. I her death, I was like dreading it the whole time. Yeah, but also like, how did Ryan get with like no no issue? Because he's a white man. The strength, the strength. <laughs> so I have another quote I want to read, which is from Storytelling and Song: Television, Music, Narrative, and Illusion in the OC, which is by Faye Woods. Um, so this is a quote from that. This hallelujah, referring to the hallelujah that plays over the scene of uh, the car accident brings traces of previous season finales and presents Marissa's death as a moment of anguish, but also as an inevitable conclusion to previous events. However, the use of who heap rather than the familiar Buckley version, her drawn out pacing and breathy ghostly vocal. I could, sorry, this is really small text. I'm really struggling and breathy ghostly vocal echoed in Marissa's last breaths and Ryan's gasped entreaties creates a sonic and memory distinct, Disjunction. Disjunction. (laughs) Disjunction, which compounds Marissa's death as a moment of emotional and narrative fracture. So in the scene of Marissa's death, you have a return to the song Hallelujah, which is the song that played um, at some point. Now I can't remember when it played. Probably during the shooting. No, that was hide and seek. Oh, 
I always get those two mixed up. So Hide and Seek is the song by Image and Heap. You know, mm, what you say? That's that's Hide and Seek, which is by Image and Heap. Um, so in the first season, Ryan leaves Newport um, while the OC by Jeff, the well, the OC. Well, <laughs> Hallelujah, the version by Jeff Buckley is playing. So we see Ryan leaving the OC. We see um, Seth sailing away from Newport, all of that kind of stuff. We see Marissa looking sad. Uh, at the end of season two, we have Hide and Seek by Imogen Heap, um, which is this very breathy, vocally song, um, which plays while Marissa shoots Trey. In season three, we have Hallelujah, sung by Imogen Heap. So the use of Imogen Heap and Hallelujah tells us that this was inevitable, right? Because each season ends with some variation on one of those things. There's a fracture with Hallelujah in terms of Ryan leaving. And then there's another fracture with hide and seek. And this combines both of them. So this was the intended. Oh, that's good. Yeah. This was the intended path for Marissa. But here's the thing that irritates me. There's a lot of ways that this could have gone. And it didn't have to end with being so nasty to Marissa, who never got to be a character because she never mattered to the narrative. She only mattered to Ryan. Infuriating. Personally, I would have loved to see Marissa become more of a leader. So, like, there's a scene in season three when she rescues a girl from being date raped. Yeah. And I had hoped that would turn into her, like, advocating for like other people. Summer. Exactly. Uh, especially with everything that she's been through. Like, you could imagine her at Berkeley taking part in, like, Take Back the Night or something yeah. like that. Or working with women addicts in recovery. Mm -hmm. um, she has all of that meat in her character, right? Well, and like she doesn't really truly care about like mm. the status of Newport. Um, mm -hmm. she, when she lives with Alex, she realizes that she she realizes the privilege she has and she's not ready to let it go. But there could be could have been a point in which she's ready to let it go. Mm -hmm. um, and it would have been really interesting. Yeah. Instead, Summer gets that storyline. And here's the thing that's really infuriating to me. She has this desire to help in her character in the same way that Sandy does, in the same way that Ryan does. It's what gets her into trouble. She yep. reaches out to Oliver and that hurts her. She reaches out to Trey and that hurts her. She reaches out to Johnny and that hurts her. She reaches out to fucking Volchek and that hurts her. I also think it's really interesting in most of those situations, she just really just wanted to be a friend. Yep. And I think that that's not really... Like, we assume that there's going to be... The show makes us assume that there's going to be some type of sexual relationship there or, like, a love interest there. But I honestly believe, Mar except with Volchek, Marissa wanted to just be friends with these people. And I I wish that they would have, like... Examined, like, examined, like yeah. the... the, the the, the inability for for women to just be friends with men the entitlement that all of those men have to her because she takes the time to show them compassion it's fucking infuriating the fact that she has all this compassion for people but she had to die even though ryan and sandy have no consequences for that kind of thing right like they're allowed to just be compassionate people and have it be interesting and core to their character but we look at marissa and our interpretation of her is not kind and compassionate it's stupid she keeps she's so stupid she keeps falling for these same yeah. boys that's how it's written and that's how we interpret it well and they don't have to do anything different because if that's the trajectory of her character from the beginning then why put any effort into it right she she that's just it feels she just exists to prove approve a point for ryan like ryan you can't save her and why does this apply to marissa and not to sandy and ryan misogyny so and I want to make this abundantly clear. So this is another quote from from the OC, a critical discussion or critical, whatever it was, the OC, a critical something. 
this is about the forums, um, the OC forums. So regardless of the participants' affinity for her character, comments pervaded the message board threads about Marissa's physical appearance, reinforcing the cultural notions of the importance of thinness and material possessions in order to be viewed as attractive. While some comments referred to specific items of clothing or designer apparel worn by her character, other remarks, at times rather crude, centered more clearly on Marissa as sexually desirable. As posted by I Love Seth Cohen... Ryan should smack Marissa in the face with his cock, then kick her out of the pool house. Degrading and demeaning comments such as this were primarily found in reference to Marissa. These posts served to prevent her character from being treated with respect throughout the message board, as even when someone attempted to justify her character's actions or defend her role within the plot, numerous other participants would retort with negative responses and close down the conversation. One message board participant went as far as including embedded links to pornographic pictures of Misha Barton, which served as a further means of objectification. So this is a fan forum dedicated to loving the OC, where you are still not allowed to love Marissa. Or Misha Barton, for that matter. People looked upon her with so much fucking scorn. Um, like, people really hated Misha Barton, not just Marissa either. Like, they they also really hated Misha Barton. Um, which Misha she, Barton is very much a product of her time. Yeah, like, I, I watched... Like, I was reading some about Misha Barton because I was like, why did everybody hate... Like, I wasn't watching the show when it was on. I didn't watch it until a little bit later. Um, and I was like, why did everyone hate her so much? And it was mostly like, she's ungrateful. She's mean. And I'm like, well, lots of people are ungrateful and mean. I personally think that's fascinating. Like I, I'm just interested in people who are like famous and mean, you know, like I find, I find Misha Barton really interesting for that reason. I think so. I read one interview where she said that, um, people expect her Misha Barton to be, to be Marissa. Mm -hmm. And she said she's not. But ultimately, I really do think that Misha Barton did take the same path as Marissa Cooper. She she did spiral. She did have a breakdown. She did become addicted. She did go to rehab. She had to she had to redo everything. So it's easy to take that hate for Marissa Cooper and put it into Misha Barton because it feels like they're the same person when her at least her public life is mirroring that of 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 Marissa Cooper. And really, to me, it sounds like. Misha Barton was just really honest. She's also really young. She was the she was the youngest person on the cast at the time. Uh, um, it just it feels like Misha Barton was too honest, and people didn't like that. Like when yeah. she like she spoke her mind, and off like as as we said in the last episode with regard to what she said about like the the veteran with no legs liking her show. Like it's not as if that's like a nice thing to say, but people really didn't like that Misha Barton wasn't nice. Well, and this is also a time in which everybody feel felt that people should be grateful for the things that they have right like there's no there's no conversations about like okay you can be grateful for the things you have but still question question like the issues that are there right so um there's a lot of jealousy in that there's you know you're on this top show this is like the biggest show on television and you can all you can do is just be ungrateful like why would i like you right there's no conversation of um like somebody has the ability like i i equate this a lot to People like um, Miley Cyrus and being criticized for not being a good role model when she has no responsibility to anybody to be a good role model. But at the time, there was definitely the feeling that she did. We don't have those conversations till later in hindsight. Right. So this kind of raises the question of why did we hate Misha Barton so much and Marissa so much, but we didn't hate Summer. And she was Dane Seth Cohen. 
I think that's part of it. But I imagine that Summer probably had her own legion of haters, right? Like, I imagine that it wasn't that nobody hated Summer. But I think a lot of people were infatuated with the idea of Marissa self-destructing. Like, people were just really into that. Um, it probably didn't help that Ryan and Marissa were also not good for one another. So if Ryan was your favorite character and you understood that Marissa and Ryan were a bad relationship, you probably were like, fuck that Marissa bitch. Well, also, like I said, I was saying before, like Marissa Cooper is very much in, in, in parallel with a lot of the it girls of the time. Mm-hmm. Summer is not right. Like there's a lot, you could, you could make a lot of, you know, some, I mean, Paris Hilton was on there, right? That's because she, she is of that time. She's the it girl of that time, but also like Lindsay Lohan, who was just a mess. And Misha Barton was part of that. So it makes sense that, that, that funnels over to Marissa Cooper because Marissa Cooper is, is mirroring a lot of these same behaviors. Mm-hmm. And Marissa is also this very feminine character, both in her presentation and in the way that she's written. Like not, not just, I mean, Summer's also very feminine, right? Um, but Marissa is like stereotypically feminine. Like she's a damsel character. She's a love interest character. She needs to be rescued. Um, all of these kinds of things. She does a lot of things that are coded feminine. She cares about fashion. She cares about her looks. All of this kind of stuff, right? And ultimately, she serves as a motivation for Ryan rather than as a character with her own journey because her journey is to die. And that's what really gets to me, right? Is the fact that she's treated as a narrative tool rather than as a fully fleshed out character. So her... the. Like knowing, watching season three and seeing them dangling this narrative carrot of, is Marissa going to get better? No, she's going to fucking die. It feels mean. It doesn't feel like necessary. It feels mean. It was very sad. Um, And what's especially tra- tragic about it is that there's no reason it has to be tragic. Like, yeah, Newport was like she could have realized the effect that Newport was having on her. Right. And what being in this toxic and environment I think she was doing. Did. Yeah. And she could have left for a college even that wasn't Berkeley and just left her friend group behind with no intent to return. I'm fine with that. I don't know if me like I don't know if that fits Misha Barton's definition. I don't think so. But we don't know exactly what Misha Barton meant because we're just having to read into what she said. She could have meant I don't ever want to come back to this shithole show. So kill me off. Or she could have meant I don't ever. It's nothing. Um. I think that having me having it open to Marissa coming back is a stupid end for the character. She's that's just how I felt. That's how when I was reading it. That's yeah. how I felt. I felt it was more of that's a stupid thing. And like, I don't want to be I don't want to be the one the the shark in this in the jump the shark situation. That's the thing. And, and I think a lot of people met, read it as the former. The idea of she she doesn't she hates this show so much that she would rather see her character die than have any other kind of ending i think it's more the fact of she wanted like she it seems like she did want off the show to some degree but not any more than anybody else as josh schwartz and her both said um but that she wanted an ending for the character and this is it if, if nothing else it is an ending like she certainly ended but like there are other ways that that could have happened and had her just like peace the fuck out and say i'm never coming back to newport and i hate all of you she couldn't say that. I mean, she couldn't say that exactly. But th- like, it could have been done, right? This is a show in which people fall off a roof and get put into a new universe. Like, it could have happened. I mean, look at Jimmy Cooper. Yeah, it could have happened. Or Caitlin Cooper. Yeah, it could have happened. Um, or Lindsay. <laughs> I could go on. Yeah. It gets complicated because I see what they were trying to do with Marissa, right? Like, I see her relationship with Ryan as being toxic, and I see that Ryan needed to learn that he can't save everybody. But you can't make the argument of it being a story about you can't save somebody who doesn't want to be saved, right? Because, in part, you can see how she's getting better at the end of the season. 
So like if that was even the case, she could have exited the show by saying, you can't save me, but I can save myself by I'm getting on a bus and never returning. Or a plane to Hawaii and never returning. Yeah. Like she, she had it was all set up for her to have a good life. And instead they killed her for the like the emotional gut punch and also so that Ryan could suffer. Yeah. Everybody could suffer, really. Um, she the thing that Marissa needed was a purpose besides loving Ryan. She needed the opportunity to do what Sandy and Ryan do. But she never got that opportunity. And that's why I fucking hate the ending for Marissa so much. I'm so sorry. It was it was iconic, though. It was iconic, though. Let's talk about Taylor. Oh, Taylor. Um, I knew that Ryan and Taylor got together before I was introduced to Taylor as a character. But that made season three absolutely fucking wild because they never interact ever. Like I was just like, how is it possible that these two characters are going to end up together? Uh, Taylor in the beginning comes off as very, very Newport. Like she's mean, but she disguises it with like ambition and niceness. But she's like straight up social mean. chair, social chair. But one of the things that does really work about the OC is how when we get to know her, we see that there's all of these cracks in the image that she presents of herself. Like the fact she's never had a fucking birthday party. It's just another Luke. Yeah. Like it's just so sad. It's so sad. I mean, Luke's not as sad, but no, Luke's- but it is another situation in which you're like, oh, this person's awful. And then you like look into it. Oh, no. Like, oh, wait. Mm. So this is a quote from the OC, um, a critical understanding. Uh, though, though Taylor eventually becomes social chair, albeit via underhanded methods, she's depicted as a failure. Taylor is hated by her classmates. And as a result, her conceptions of the school carnival and lock in are overruled. Thus, not only is ambition shown as an unattractive trait in women through Taylor's competition with Summer the OC, oh, sorry, through Taylor's competition with Summer, the OC reinforces the hegemonic stereotype that women cannot handle being in positions of power. In fact, the OC appears to suggest that males are the rightful holders of power because in both cases, Seth is portrayed as responsible for the success of the events. He was the one who encouraged Summer to voice her ideas for the carnival, and he took over for Taylor at the lock-in by offering suggestions for better activities. Summer did save Krismica, though. It's true. So here's the thing. This book has a real problem, and most criticism of the OC has a real problem with looking at female characters on the surface and never looking at anything else. It doesn't consider relationships. It doesn't consider later developments. It just looks at the surface. So, like, I mean, okay, sure, right? Like, yes, Taylor's a real jerk in season three, and um, she doesn't. It her ambition is is coded unattractive. Sure, okay, but her development does not stop there. The thing. That the thing that this doesn't do is talk about development, right? Because Taylor doesn't stop at season three. Taylor, we learn more about her, and as that <laughs> and as that happens, we get to know more about her and the reasons that she acts the way that she does. So, first of all, just to head off this, I think when you're talking about serialized media, it is totally worthwhile to anal- analyze things on an episodic ba- episodic basis, right? Like, I don't, I don't, I clearly don't believe that because later down the line you know she changes doesn't mean that the critique of an individual episode is no longer legitimate i don't i don't think that but when you're talking about overarching themes in a complete story and saying things like the oc reinforces the hegemonic stereotype that women cannot handle being in positions of power you have to go beyond the interpreta- interpretation of the event as it first appeared, right? Because that's an incomplete view of the show. It, this book also at one point made the suggestion that when men initiate sex in the OC, it's viewed as a good thing. And when women initiate sex in the OC, it's a bad thing. And that shows that the OC is contributing to the idea that women should be passive and submissive in sex. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like Taylor and Summer. Yeah, Taylor and Summer multiple times 
Like there's a scene, there's a scene in which like, to be fair, Summer is like trying to distract Seth from um, analyzing some uncomfortable truth. And she, she pushes him over and goes, I want to be on top. And he goes, you're always on top. Like, this is not a show in which like, like the women are submissive and meek in any sense. So anyway, because I'm like Taylor, beep and bop. Yeah. I love Taylor. <laughs> I died at that part. It was so funny. Oh, I love Taylor. The thing is that Taylor's not a failure, right? But Taylor sees herself as a failure. She may be hated by her classmates at first because she's just just so much. She's just so fucking much, right? But as we get to know her better, especially through season four, we see her differently. And we definitely don't see her as unlikable. She's an incredibly wonderful foil to Ryan in particular. She is somebody that looks like she's got her shit together, but she has exactly zero of her shit together. She's a mess. Very relatable. She's yeah, she's she's just she's an absolute mess and I love her. Yeah. And and to say that like season three initial portrayal of of Taylor as being this ambitious, horrible person is Taylor is just not a complete picture. Yeah. It's only part of the puzzle. I have to say. I feel nothing for Taylor and Ryan. Really? I love it. I don't hate it. I just am like, I think there's just so much going on that mm-hmm. I'm just, I can't, I have I've yet to just really get behind it. I love it because she's so, she challenges Ryan in a way that he's never been challenged I before. I agree. I just, I feel nothing when I watch them together. Did you feel anything for Ryan and Marissa? No. I think the problem is Ryan. Maybe. <laughs> Ryan is not an emotive character at all. And it is hard. It is hard. With him to... Because, like, even the episode when he's, like, trying to say, I love you, it's, like, hard to care yeah. to an extent. But I love the idea of them together. And I the episode I like the most is the episode where he's trying to, like, just push down those feelings of attraction that he has for well, Taylor. I, you know, I can't say that I don't feel anything when I when I think of Ryan and Marissa. I feel the most for them when they're apart. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe that's... I don't know. I think I think Ryan is an issue. <laughs> I mean, I think that's fair. Um, he's just not emotive, and it's hard to really feel for him. But I love the idea of them together just because she's such a challenge for him that he can't overcome by punching something. He has to emote with Taylor, and I like that a lot. Um, do you have anything else to say about Taylor? No. Well, then let's talk about Summer. Oh, Summer. I love Summer so much. So, as as a character, Cerny, Cerny? Blended two words together. Summer's journey is pretty fucking buckwild. She started off as a temporary party girl. Yeah, bitch. Uh, to measure Marissa against. And then later she became one of the core cast. And in fact, one of the most rounded characters in the show, in my opinion. I feel like Summer is the most complete character. Throughout season three, we see her come to realize her own potential. So this is when she realizes that she's smart. Uh, she gets into Brown and Seth does not get into Brown because he is too busy getting high in a just absolutely bizarre plot divergence. Um, but my favorite part of that whole thing was how Summer responds to it. So when she finds out that Seth has been smoking weed and not telling her about it, instead of being like, oh, my God, I can't believe you smoked weed. She finds it and she goes, ew, which is great. But then when she finally talks to him about it, she, he's like, are you mad that I was smoking weed? And she's like, no, I was getting high with Marissa when you were in here doing playing with Cap Notes. Yeah, playing with Captain Notes or whatever. She's like, I'm mad that you lied to me. And I'm like, yes. Exactly. Yes, summer. Yes. Or, yes, Summer. Yes. Um. So this is and then, you know, Marissa dies in the end of season three, as you may have known. 
since we just talked about it forever. Um, and Summer's response is to throw herself into activism. Um, but before we get there, I want to read this quote from the OC of Critical Understanding, which reads, When Summer's thoughts turn to college, she focuses on attending a school in a location with 365 days of sun and her ability to join a sorority rather than basing her decisions on course offerings or majors. Although Summer originally decided that she wanted to apply to schools in Arizona, she eventually changes her mind in order to follow Seth to Rhode Island because she fears what if he goes to college and meets a bunch of really smart, interesting girls, and that's who he realizes he's supposed to be with. Clearly, Summer's college experience is not important to her. She is not operating out of agency, but instead out of insecurity and doubt. On the one hand... Sure, at first. Yeah, she's she's operating out of insecurity and doubt. On the second hand, she has to realize that she is the really smart, interesting girl. She has to realize that. She doesn't know that she yet. She doesn't know that yet. She That's the thing. That's, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's the, the whole point line. is that she doesn't know that about herself when she has, in fact, been that girl the whole time. Um, it was about the friends she made along the way. Yeah. Like she, I think she is operating out of agency, right? Like she ultimately makes the decision to go to Brown without Seth. Yeah. Or else she would have chosen not to go to Brown. Yeah. She would have stayed behind and she doesn't. She goes to Brown and it's hard. That's just only looking at part of the, part of the story. Again, it comes up, right? (laughs) This idea of only looking at part of it. So this is another quote from that. Uh, while trying to demonstrate how she's changed, she inadvertently shows how much she's still the same stereotypical female by mispronouncing the name of the very award she wants to win and trying to break barriers that had already been broken decades prior. Thus, Summer's goals become a joke. It's impossible to take her intellect and dream seriously since they cannot actually be achieved. So is this, did Seth write this? <laughs> Seth wrote this book. So this is, this is in reference to the part when she says she wants to win a no a Nobel Prize and become the first woman in space or whatever, which it's the, the Nobel Prize. And of course, she can't be the first woman in space already happened. And Seth responds by immediately correcting her and making her feel stupid. And I think this speaks more to Seth's desire to knock her down. Yeah. Than to it, Summer. That that scene is not set up as a joke. That mm-hmm. scene is set up as you can't even support me in the smallest yep. way mm-hmm. and she walks away sad because he made her feel stupid because he can't take one moment to shut up mm-hmm. and just support her yeah it does it matter that she said it wrong or that she doesn't know that no it doesn't yeah she, she doesn't being smart is more than just knowing the how to pronounce the nobel prize and that who went into space yeah like here's that's a, clear by how, how she found out she's smart she didn't find she she didn't go take that that test and be, get like all those types of questions right she like she said it was an aptitude she had the aptitude and that's that's what the sat tests by the way it doesn't test your fucking trivia knowledge it tests your ability to reason yeah um like to be fair like i'm sure summer has heard of the nobel prize before like it's a bit of a stretch to to have her say one of those no, noble prizes. Like, it's a bit of a logical stretch. Sure. That's a fault of the writing. But at the same point, like, at the same time, Seth and Summer are not anywhere near done developing as characters. We still have two seasons left at this point, right? Seth is still super clingy, and he's a huge asshole that can't let anybody shake up his conception of himself as the exceptional, smart, funny guy. If anybody else tra- threatens that, he gets upset. Summer still doesn't know who she is. Right. Like when you see how Summer throws herself into things because she because she does the thing that's not expected of her. I think it's hard to say that her goals, even, you know, as like weird as they are, like 
you can't be the first woman to space and there's no such thing as a Nobel Prize. Like her ambition is not fake and her intelligence is not fake. She just makes mistakes because she's not smart in the same way that Seth is smart. There are lots of ways to be smart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have another quote I want to read. Same book. Interestingly, halfway through the third season, there is a radical shift in the depiction of Summer. In the fourth season DVD bonus feature, Summer Roberts, Beauty Meets Brown, series creator Josh Schwartz makes several claims that Summer's change is due to her relationship with Seth. Schwartz notes, I think we always wanted to take her from that girl with the red cup in her hand and a bikini top all the time to someone who was more thoughtful and the relationship with Seth had helped add depth to her character. Later in the same feature, Schwartz states, the fact that a guy like Seth would be into her awakens something in her. Oh, maybe I have more going on. Not only does attributing Summer's growth to Seth reinforce reinforce anti-feminist stereotypes, it also seems to be contradicted by later episodes. Again, there's legitimacy to this complaint, right? Like the idea that Josh Schwartz attributes her development to having Seth Seth. be into her. Also, like Josh Schwartz is Seth, so. Right. (laughs) Um, But I also think it's not that simple, right? Seth is an outsider in Newport, and he's also the first person to really challenge summer's worldview he sucks big time like he sucks so bad and it does suck that her development couldn't come about on her own or because of another female character or rather not that it couldn't but that it doesn't but at the same time i don't think it's only love for seth right that makes her different it's having her worldview challenge it's being exposed to ryan because we see in the in the chrismica huh without ryan's presence summer be just becomes that same person she was in the first episode. Like her exposure to different perspectives, not just her exposure to Seth Cohen changes her as a character. And we see that continue throughout the development of season four as she becomes more interactive. Just based off of Seth, they would never have broken up 6 million times. Right. So it's clear to me that summer as a character is deeply self-conscious. Like she's surprised that she's smart. She's she's concerned that somebody like Seth would like her because she's like, he's going to go off with one of those brown girls and I'm not one of those brown girls. He's going to go for an interesting, smart girl, which tells you that that's not how she sees herself. But and like she tries on a lot of the different identities through the show, especially after Marissa's death. So she was a party girl and then she becomes less of a party girl and then she becomes an activist and then she goes back to being like peak noopsie for a very short period of time. And then she becomes a couch potato. And eventually she becomes an activist again. Like she's trying on all of these different identities, find the one, trying to find the one that matches her. And ultimately, what does she realize is? What does she realize? It's the one that's all of them. Yeah. It's the one that's Summer. It's not the one that's a noopsie. It's not the one that's Che. It's not the one that's Marissa. It's the one that's Summer. I do love that it's Julie Cooper who who shows her that. Yes. That lesson. Yes. Um, I have another quote I want to read. Uh, Seth lies. I guess I... What did I want here? Furthermore, rather than trusting Summer to make her own decision about college in episode 71, Seth lies to her because he believes that she will not go to Brown if he doesn't. Not only does this episode undermine Summer's progressive portrayal, but it once again depicts her as privileging Seth's dreams over her own. Similarly, Seth's belief that he needs to lie to Summer because he knows what's best for her is extremely patriarchal. Therefore, while Summer does exhibit some noteworthy signs of growth, there are other moments of stasis and even retrenchment into hegemonic gender stereotypes. I very much disagree with this quote. Yeah, so here's the thing. Seth undermines her growth. Yeah. The whole thing is that Seth Seth thinks he already knows what she's gonna do so he, so he stops, tries to stop her from doing it not because he thinks i know what's best for her it's because he's an idiot yeah he cannot conceive 
of Summer wanting to be smart without him. And notably, she does fucking go to Brown without him. Also, the 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 show like clearly puts Seth in the wrong here. So I don't think that he is like pushing this misogynistic idea. I think that the show is like, Seth is an idiot, right, yeah. guys? And and like when she goes to Brown, her and Seth become distant from one another, in part because of Marissa's death. Um, but also like they just become distant. Um, Seth has always been the smart, funny one, and when that's threatened, he lashes out. And Summer depends on Seth as a source source of self confidence. She cannot build her own self confidence yet. She's dependent on Seth. That's not healthy. That's why they're not done developing as a couple. Uh, so I could also see why she wouldn't want to go to school without him, but she ultimately does. Is the thing she goes, <laughs> and she becomes a stronger person for it. And when she has the opportunity to really go. She chooses something else completely different. Mm-hmm. Like when he's there, then she chooses to go do something else. Yep. Like ultimately, she really chooses her own self. Exactly. So another quote. When Marissa dies at the end of the third season, Summer is profoundly changed. Rather than the d- be dependent on Seth for support, she goes off to Brown and deals with Marissa's death on her own. Marissa's death is the catalyst for Summer to become politically engaged. And while Summer does use her newfound activism to distract her from dealing with Marissa's death, she nevertheless transforms her life and is ultimately committed to these social issues. Thus, while Marissa and Summer do not go on the same types of adventures that are associated with male friendships, they do act as a source of comfort and can be a catalyst for positive change. One of the most important things to me here about Summer's change from being like a party girl to an activist, it like obviously it's Marissa's death is a catalyst for this, right? So she she can't care for Mar- for Marissa in the same way because Marissa is dead. She goes to Brown and she ends up in, like doing social activism, um, and she throws herself into that with like an unhealthy interest because she's trying to like distance herself from caring about her friend who died. However, it's notable that the thing she throws herself into is social activism, and it's also notable that the re- that the time she gets invested in that is not just. Not just the period following Marissa's death, but also the period in which she leaves Newport. <laughs> um, so her change comes about not just because of Marissa's death, but also because she gets the fuck out of Newport and sees that there are other things in the world to care about. She hasn't seen that up until this point. Like she might have seen it from Sandy, but also Sandy's like investing all of his time in the fucking Newport group. Like her development doesn't just come about because of Marissa. It also comes about because she gets the fuck out of Newport. And this just reinforces the idea that Newport is the real villain in the show. It's not any one character. It's the influence that, that Newport has on people. So another quote that said, summer did not leave Seth without reservations. Although summer had considered volunteering prior to the earthquake that occurred in episode 91, she becomes so absorbed in her new life with Seth that she seems as though she might waste her passion. It is Seth who reminds summer about the organization and says, you got to go summer. While she questions, but what about us? Seth responds, it is for us, both of us. Like so much of Summer's representation on the OC, on the surface, Summer appears to be challenging gender stereotypes by going off on her own and engaging in the public political sphere, an arena often closed to women. However, Seth's role in Summer's decision undermines much of her newfound agency. Rather than the decision organically emerging out of Summer's desires, she is told what to do by Seth. Hot take, it's actually okay to have discussions about your life direction with somebody you've been dating for several years. Like... I think that's actually okay. I think that's a that is a convert that is saying more to their relationship than it is anything else. Like you should have these conversations with the, your significant other, especially one that you've been with and you plan to be with for a very long time. I think it's a normal thing to do. I think what's happening in the scene is not so much summer asking for permission as it is them communicating to one another. Is this okay for you? 
yeah, I see it more as, are you going to be okay, Seth? Like, yeah. That's how I say, are you going to be okay? Because summer's going to be okay. Summer's going to, some, by even making this choice to go off and leave the source of her self-confidence for so long, Summer is asserting herself as a person who now has faith, who has faith in her ability to do things. Agreed. But she has to check with, I mean, in part, she's worried because the last time they left one another, their relationship got rocky. And she loves Seth. She cares about him. So she doesn't want that to happen again. But she's also checking in with Seth and saying, are you going to be okay if I do this? And he says, yes, I'm going to be okay." But he says it in, you know, it is for us, both of us. He's saying not only will it be like, not only will I be okay, it'll be good for both of us. Yeah. Like that idea of like finding yourself. Yeah. And that's what makes it that's what like makes it in the very end when Summer's walking down the aisle so emotional. Yeah. And Seth is effect- effectively saying here, which is something he's never said, I trust you. Yeah. He's saying, I trust that you're not going to leave me. I have the self-confidence now and the confidence in you to know that you are not going to leave me for another man. And you know, I'm not going to leave you for another girl. Like put this in, in conversation with when um, they go to LA to go to that birthday party. Mm-hmm. And Seth is like doing anything he can to get to that birthday party. Cause he thinks that somebody's going to woo, woo her away. Uh, and everything was Zach. Yeah. Like, and even the stuff with George, like he's all worried about George mm-hmm. and George ends up being this, this. I just think it works really well. It does. Like, to me, in my opinion, it has very little to do with like Seth telling her what to do and everything to do with the idea that they have finally reached a point where they are okay being separate from one another and that they have the confidence in themselves and in one another's to just trust that their relationship will survive, which is not something that they have ever had. That's part of the reason for the the fear about telling Summer he's not going to Brown. It's like, just there's just so much that comes from their own insecurity that in this final moment is our story is done here because I have faith in you and I have faith in myself. And that's something we've never had until this point. So to say that it's it's Seth telling her what to do, I think is just such a surface level reading, right? In relationships, we have to check in with our partners right i can't if i just left my husband without saying anything that would be rude or if you just left him without being like hey are you gonna be okay if i go do this yeah that's not a relationship that's weird yeah like you can care for your partners it's okay and i was like i want to go to disneyland i had to talk to my husband first and of course he was like do whatever you want to do but like, I would never make that big of a decision without talking to him first because right. we're in a relationship and that's how life works. Yeah. So I think this is the last quote I have. Yeah, this is the last quote I have about Summer. It's a it's a beefy one and it made me real mad. So buckle in. Che's family origins. I'm going to break it into two. First, Che's family origins are at odds with his political beliefs, which undermine the legitimacy of his progressive concerns. Although Che always appeared to be authentically invested in his activist endeavors at Brown, the obfuscation of his life circumstances coupled with his self-serving decision to let Summer be his scapegoat calls into question progressive causes and the people who support them. If Che's dishonesty wasn't enough, Summer also learns that the other students involved in activism at Brown were not as invested as she was. In fact, rather than genuinely trying to make the world a better place, Che explains all those other kids, they only joined in the cause so it would look good on their grad school applications, which further compromises the authenticity of an, an importance of social activism. Overall, the Brown activists support Seth's beliefs in episode two that anyone that sincere was not to be trusted. So a few things here. First of all, Che sucks ass. I hate Che and I was mad that he came back. Seriously. Um, second... I don't think that anything about social causes is being undermined here. I think that Che is being undermined here because he fucking sucks. But like 
Summer's interest is legitimate. Yeah. Sandy's interest is legitimate. Like, there's never any like, oh, that's Sandy. He's so naive. I mean, he is naive, but like Seth saying that has nothing to do with social activism, it has everything to do with his insecurities. <laughs> yeah, Seth is super insecure and he has he's just like the embodiment of irony. That's as, why his fucking superhero perso- persona is what is it? The ironist. Yeah. Like as if Seth truly gives a crap about any of that stuff. Yeah. And, like, someone being sincere about activism. He doesn't care. He cares about someone being sincere about wanting to hook up with Summer. Right. Just. Yeah. I don't think that the show goes like there are there are times when the show is kind of like, ha ha, these kids are like too into it, which, you know, we've all done that. Um, But like, I don't think that the show is actually undermining social activism in any way or Summer wouldn't go off at the end and join George. It just it just seems as like such a surface level reading to me to follow that up. Summer's political... This is another quote from the OCA Critical Understanding. Summer's political activism is also undercut by her actions. For instance, although she eschews $1,500 boots and her favorite television show because of their frivolity, Summer still appears to be an avid consumer. Just within the fourth season, since she becomes politically aware, Summer purchases goods that represent her new identity, including numerous t-shirts and posters with political slogans. Besides the fact that the money spent on these products could be donated to charitable causes, the ideologies reflected in the slogans are at odds with Summer's purchases. She also, this is um, referenced later, she also says that she likes chilies to her father, the, the restaurant chilies. That's the whole point. This this section is just that Matt Boar's gotcha guy comic. Yeah. Like, oh, I see you tweeting about the treatment of people at the Apple factory from your Apple iPhone. Don't you think that makes you a hypocrite? It's like I hate this mentality. I hate it so much. I can be an anti-capitalist while still having to participate in capitalism because it's the world in which I live in and I have to freaking eat. No, you have to go off the grid. I hate this mentality. So, like, the show is not absolved of its emphasis on consumerism just because I say it is, right? Like, I don't, I'm not making that case. Um, and it, it's also not absolved of its emphasis on consumerism because Summer supports PETA, right? Nor do I think that Summer is 100% dedicated to being an activist, nor does the show. Please do not forget, it takes her a long time to commit to a life of activism. But come on, who didn't have a PETA poster up in their room while continuing to eat at their favorite bullshit restaurant, right? Like, that was PETA marketing. Yeah, that was PETA marketing. PETA's a shit ass plate, like company, entity, whatever. It sucks. Um, like we all did, like we all fucking did that, right? Like, and all of us have phones that were made by horrible labor practices in countries where people are oppressed and and treated terribly. But this is the society we live in. And if we want to participate in it, and most of us do have to participate in it, that's how it is. Like, it's unfortunate and we should work to change that. But it seems ridiculous to say Summer talked about Chili's, the restaurant with her father, and therefore she can't really support PETA. I mean, PETA might say that, but PETA sucks. So, you know, like, really, did we just expect Summer to go off the grid? Well, and I also think that's part of part of Summer's arc is that she can do both these things and still be genuine to herself. Mm-hmm. Like the point of Summer's arc for me, and that is that I can care about these things while also still wanting to get my nails done. And like that's important to me because I feel the same way. Like these things are important to me, but also like I love to shop and like I love that kind of stuff. And so like Summer's whole arc of like finding out that she's smart and like wanting to be politically active but still wanting to like be into these things is very relatable for me. And as we mentioned earlier, like 
social issues like the ones that Summer cares about are not caused by individual purchasing practices, right? Like Summer not Summer suddenly saying, I can't eat at Chili's because they serve chicken nuggets or whatever, like does not change the fact that factory farming is a horrible environmentally damaging process. Like Summer could very well boycott Chili's and that would feel good to her, but it wouldn't actually solve the issue, would it? That's why her activism is still important. <laughs> it's just like, I, of course, I would have liked to see a little more interrogation of Summer's consumption, right? Just as I would have liked to see a little more of any fucking social issue in this show, right? Like, that's what I spent the first 20 minutes complaining about. But this is so nitpicky to say that it undermines Summer's... To say that it undermines Summer's development because she likes to eat at Chili's. It's very weird. Um, I want to talk about Caitlin. Okay, let's talk about... we've already kind of talked about Frank. Yeah, let's talk. He's not worth our time. He's not worth our time. Uh, although I, w- I would like to just throw out there, I definitely cried when Julie got her diploma. I, I held know. it. I held it together through the whole last episode until I saw her hold up her diploma and then I started to cry. I started crying when Summer was walking down the aisle. That was good. Uh, that was good. But oh, Julie holding up that diploma. I was I so happy. I was so proud of her. She didn't go with any man and she went to college and got her diploma. And, and they all still sat there and supported her. I'm so happy. So yeah. happy. Um, let's talk about Caitlin a little bit. I don't get Caitlin. I feel I so looking back on it, I didn't like Caitlin. Rewatching it, I feel bad for Caitlin. Mm-hmm. I feel like Caitlin is pointless and if she was just there to like like she's just turning the crank on different plot lines and when they finally try to give her something, it just goes nowhere. And what really pushed me over the edge is the Christmas hunt when you find out that the only person who really benefited from Marissa's death was Caitlin by going to Berkeley early, being the youngest in her class. That really made me mad. Mm-hmm. I was like, so Caitlin just just screwed by Marissa mm-hmm. being alive. Yeah. That made me mad. Yeah, that's fair. I, I just... As a character, I just don't get Caitlin's function within the show. She feels very much like a watered down Effie from yep. from Skins. Like she even looks like Effie a bit. Um, she like she shows up and it's like, oh my god! I didn't even talk about everything with the trailer park <sighs> in the section about class. She just shows up in season three and is like, "Hi, I'm a even more like wild Marissa, and I'm just not very nice." And then in season for her main function is to meddle in her mother's love life. It's, yeah, I, I ultimately I like I like when she stands up to her mother was like I just want to be us be okay and like mm-hmm. you not have to have anybody else and like ultimately that was good and I and I super get behind that but everything before that just felt like she was just had that crank she's like all right plot here we go. Yeah. It it felt unfair. Yeah, she wasn't handled very well. It really felt to me like they were setting up the OC the next generation, just like well, they did in Skins. Well, you know that the the um the stuff with uh the um, flashbacks with Sandy and Kirsten and all that stuff. They were setting. They were trying to do a spinoff. Oh, so it's very that. possible that they were because they did the same thing with Gossip Girl. It didn't work, but um. They were and like the idea was that going to be that they were set in the same world, but then it didn't work because Caitlin's actress doesn't work anyways. But um, so I would imagine that, yes, they were probably trying to set up the next generation, um, but it just didn't work. It just it just didn't work. And I really I felt I was rooting for the bullet because of Caitlin, mm-hmm. because it felt like Caitlin finally had somebody to really, truly lean on. Yeah. It was just a missed opportunity. Again, mm-hmm. uh, why can the Cooper the Cooper daughters not have like 
characters. They just have to be tools in the plot. Yeah, it sucks. And like we know that it's not like it's not just that that's how how all women are treated because <coughs> neither Summer nor Taylor are treated that way. It's just Caitlin and Marissa. Some Coopers. Also, wasn't there a third Cooper daughter? I don't think so. Okay, maybe I'm losing my mind. Um, do you have anything else to say? No. I have to go to the bathroom. I can't believe that I watched all of the OC. I know. There was so much of it. And now I'm watching Looking for Alaska. Oh, boy. I'm going to rewatch the freaking debutante episode to see if that's the same scene. <laughs> it's so good. Um, so that's going to do it for this episode and for our discussion of the OC. We are finally free of the OC. It was so good, though. It was so good. It was so good. I love this show. I'm so glad that you enjoyed parts of season three and four. Yeah, I did. I think that the end of season three and the beginning of season four were like, honestly, part of my... F- well, not so much the end of season three, but the beginning of season four, I would rank just below season two in terms of my favorites. Um, it does take a turn after the Chris McCaha that I wasn't as much into. But the first part, I loved. It gets a little too lighthearted in the end. It does. And then the, and then all of a sudden there's an earthquake. It was pretty wild. It was pretty wild. But like in a good way. I liked a lot of the earthquake they stuff. They sure did love flashbacks and weird editing. Josh, Josh, we were watching the second one of those episodes that starts with something wild happening. And then it goes like 24 hours earlier. And he's like, I got to say, I love this. I love anytime a show does this. <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyway, so that's going to do it for this episode. We're done with the OC. We're moving on. Um, just like Ira Glass, I, when I hear the theme song to the OC, I love TV and I love my wife. I don't have a wife, but if I did, I'd love her even more when I heard the theme song to the OC. Um, it's a good ass show. It holds up in my opinion. I agree. I think it holds up. Not in every way. And, and like I said, as I said in this very episode, it's fucking stupid. Like it's a stupid fucking show sometimes, but I love it a lot. I really, really do. I love the characters so much. They're my children and I love them. I just get like, when you watch that opening, mm-hmm. it just makes you emotional. Mm-hmm. It's good. Um, so you can find us online at fakegirlscast.com, which has links to our social media. We're most active on Instagram and Twitter, uh, where we are fake geek girls cast i think on instagram and fake un- well we're fake geek girls with an underscore between each word on twitter um because when we first started i was just claiming names and we um a lot of them weren't available so that's that we're just fake geek girls on instagram we're just fake geek girls on instagram don't listen to me um it, you can also find a link to our patreon where for a small donation per month you can get cool rewards that will send you uh, online or in the mail um you can also for 50 dollars, which is a lot of money but don't worry we don't expect you to hold it for a long time if there's something that you really want us to do an episode on if you subscribe at the 50 dollar level for one month you get to make us do an episode on a topic of your choice um which is how we ended up doing some of our favorite episodes including our avatar series the carmilla episode um what else did we do there's another i know there's another one Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah. That was it. Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Um, so I, we really like those because it kind of pushes us out of our comfort zone, especially when it's something that like we never would have thought to do. Like we might have thought to do Avatar, right? But we never would have thought to do Carmilla. Never. Yeah. And it ended up being a really fun episode. It was. Uh, so we love that. We love that. Um, if you want to just throw $50 at us, that's a, that's a thing you could do. We'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. We will gladly take your money. Um. Next time we will be oh first of all at we'll be at Geek Girl Con uh November 16th and 17th I want to say. Um we are doing a live let's play of Undertale um which Mary has not played before. If you attend this I will give this warning at the show as well but please 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 I beg of you 
do not push Mary in any direction. Do not give any spoilers. I want Mary to have this like pure experience of this game that plays out exactly as she wants it to. Um, because I think that's really valuable. Um, but we will be doing a live Let's Play on the Ray stage, which is the Let's Play stage at 3 p.m., if I remember correctly. It's the 16th and 17th of November. So join us on the 17th um, and come watch us play Undertale live on it's stage. It's going to be good. It's going to be good, especially where I made Mary stop. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then next time we'll be doing we'll be taking a brief break um, because we are going to St. Louis, um, which will be a lot of fun. And then we will be doing what we've been up to. And then we will be talking about Steven Universe. Round two. We already did Steven Universe, but we're going to do it again. We've got more to say. we got more to say. Never stops. Yeah. And we're going to do it better than we did the first time. Um, So that's it. Cool. Catch on the flip side. (laughs) 